This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Stay Out of Real Estate Jail, Your Lifeline to Real Estate. And the author is Barbara Bell Olson. And Barbara joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Barbara. Hi, how are you? Great to have you with us. Uh, this is quite a book to really protect the buyer or seller of real estate. Your passion, your dedication is there. We're going to learn more about that in a moment. But let me read just a couple statements that you've written about your book. Uh, and they're uh, very direct, and they're obviously uh, come with a huge belief and belief level that you've uh, gathered over many, many years of experience. You say, stay out of real estate jail is educational for realtors worldwide, new to the industry or seasoned professionals. It will become their real estate Bible or reference manual. Well, that's all encompassing. And obviously, uh, you feel very strongly about this. I absolutely do. It's it's, uh, a definite necessity for everybody out there. I wrote it directly and initially for realtors and really to protect the public. That's what it's about. So it's a starter kit for those just entering the real estate industry, and it's also for the seasoned, experienced agent. Absolutely. When we, uh, when you're just starting out, you really need a plan, a guideline, a, a chart of what you're going to do, and it relates directly to writing the contract. And that's where we want to protect everybody out there, the public. So if protect them ourselves, you know, then we have to have a plan. So the plan is follow what's in Stay Out of Real Estate Jail. The guidelines are there, the concerns you want to use to double-check and make sure are talked about with the public, and then either added to the contract or separately and sort of reviewed with the public. And so it's not just new people, it's experienced as well. We seem to become complacent in real estate when we're experienced. I mean, I've been around 35 years. And, yeah, sometimes I think, oh, well, I know it all. I never know it all. It changes so often, and we have to keep up to date. We've got to look after the public so that they are protected. 35 years experienced realtor, uh, you've probably seen about every situation there is, and as you are trying to emphasize here, the importance of writing this contract of purchase or sale is critical, really, for the benefit of all involved. It absolutely is. You know, we all have uh, belong to associations and have real estate councils, etc., 
and that's who we report to and um, or an association depends what the word is on the area you live in but they have a mandate and you know most of them their mandate is to protect the public and I was sitting there thinking one day well if we're supposed to protect the public who's protecting us so that we can do this you know we get tons of paper and and orders, instructions thrown at us almost daily. That's exaggerating. But, you know, it changes so often. There's a change in the industry. There's a change in something. And we can't keep up with it all. So that's what made me write the book and at least have the main items there that will protect the public because if you write them and use them that way to suit where you live then you're protecting yourself and the public. And that's what our mandate is. There's too many times realtors have a bad name, and and it just makes me so upset when I hear that. You know, they jump in, they want to make a fast buck, they don't care what happens. Well, where I'm from, which is in British Columbia, Canada, we get rid of those people. And I know the National Association of Realtors in the States does the same thing. So let's not have that image of ourselves out there. Let's be proud. Let's work together. And let's really help everybody. Besides being a realtor yourself, you've also been in management. Give us a little, you know, little brief view of all of that background you have. Well, I was originally jumped in the game uh, as a a realtor, and uh, that was quite a scare. I didn't know what to do. There was no training in those days, nothing happened, and uh, so eventually I figured that one out, and some of that story is in Stay Out of Real Estate Jail, and then um, eventually later on I became a managing broker, and I loved it, except actually I must admit the first day I was a managing broker, I went in quite proud, strutting around thinking, oh, this will be fun to be a managing broker. And two people were in a fight over commission in my office. And I thought, if this is being a managing broker, I don't (laughs) want it. (laughs) Just about out of fit. So anyway, then I carried on and I ended up buying my own um, uh, brokerage. And it was at that time called Well Banker Bellows and Realty. And so I built a little wee boutique-type house uh, in Kitsilano, quite a trendy area in Vancouver, B.C. And so I built that and managed that and did everything and uh, had a wonderful time and the best agents in the world. And then uh, it was time to move on up for me, and so I moved over as managing broker to Royal LePage Westside in Vancouver, and I guess the one thing I'm the proudest of there is uh, every one of my realtors came with me. And that's actually something because every other company was recruiting them with, you know, come join us, we'll give you a year free to work here. And nobody went. Everybody came with me. So that's where I am now, Managing Broker, Royal LePage Westside and in Vancouver. In your book, I see a title of a chapter, a real estate agent's job description. What are some of the most important parts of that job description? Well, it isn't make money. (laughs) 
I know a lot of new people think, oh, well, let's go do this and, and jump in. It isn't. The mandate, I'm sorry to say, I know I'm repeating myself, is to protect the public. But your job description is to work together. All of us as real estate agents need to cooperate and work together. We'll get further ahead because in the end we protect the seller, we protect the buyer, and we protect ourselves. And, you know, our business would actually grow if we work closely with our colleagues and associates and do that kind of thing. So I believe that uh, in your job description, you need a checklist for every step of the way, what you're doing, how you're doing it, following up, and the most important thing is honesty and integrity. Well, let's talk about this famous five subjects in most contracts. That seems to uh, jump out as a very important part of this. Okay, the five subjects, did you say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they actually got named the famous five by the realtors up here when I teach my uh, courses up here. And all it really means is if you don't talk about five subjects, possible subjects, with your client customer, then you've forgotten something. So they really are important, and it's amazing. They're usually almost always the same. And so and that's only being in generalization. There would be subject to financing, right? You're subject to uh, insurance. And insurance has become a critical one for us up here, and I'm sure it is in the States as well, and subject to an inspection. Now, the other two are obtaining a copy of and approving the title search and obtaining a copy and approving a copy of the property disclosure statement that the seller fills out if they fill it out. And so we've turned those two now to be statements, property disclosure and the title insurance, and uh, sorry, and the title search. And so we want to try and get those up front when we first see a property because they give us so much information to know what has to be disclosed in a contract, if there's anything on title we need to worry about, if there's a material latent defect, and that kind of thing. So they really are, the main five concerns are the financing, the insurance, the inspection, the property disclosure, and the title search. And then you go from there and you do your property specifics, and that would be what relates to the particular property that you're buying. About half your book, it looks like, uh, deals with, as it says in Chapter 7, common contract statements. This is where you're really, really teaching all the uh, explanatory clauses, phrases, statements, all all of that so-called stuff for property specifics. Okay, this is really, there's really an order. I do my contracts, and I'm not meaning it's correct, but I do my contract. I then do all the statements that you just mentioned, and then I do the famous five, the subjects, okay, and then I go to the stuff. But the 32 items you mentioned are really a checklist. You know, like I said, a pilot, thank God, doesn't fly without going through his checklist because I wouldn't want to be on his plane. You know, if he doesn't know what he's doing, forget that. I don't, you know, he sits there, he checks every item off. 
we as a real estate agent should be doing the same thing. So we check off, do we need this statement or don't we? So they're there as a checklist or there as a reminder. A number of them, yes, you will put in your contract and uh, probably in most of your contracts. The others are just a reminder to not forget about them. So you would put those in that you need and then you carry on and then in my way of doing it, which like I say is not mandatory by any stretch, I then would go and put in my famous five subjects, which would be three subjects. And then let's suppose it was a rental property. That would be the property specific or the stuff. And then I would start and put that in. And if you continue Honest to God, if you just do it in a proper order and do everything the way it's laid out, you'll never forget anything. You'll be thrilled with your contract. You'll be thrilled uh, when you win the contract. And, you know, even your colleagues will be impressed. They don't have to rewrite your contracts. They're up to date. They're perfect. And meanwhile, this whole thing that's happening is the public are protected. You know, and the public now, like I said, are even buying this book to see the 32 items, etc. that hopefully their realtors, including if need be, in the property that they could be buying. So it's, it's a win-win. And you're saying if people will, you know, if the realtors will follow your plan here, they're going to be more successful than ever. You're not kidding. And they're going to be satisfied, and even more so, they're going to be fiercely proud like I am to be a realtor, and they're going to be proud if someone ever looked at the contract. You know, I saw one the other day, and I just about had a heart attack. That realtor was making an awful lot of money, and the contract was the worst I've ever seen in my life. It was written on an old form, so it's not even enforceable, an old contract form. So it's not enforceable. It um, the appliances that were going to be included were just stated as per the MLS listing or whatever. They weren't specified out. Nothing. It was it was absolutely awful. And I honestly, if that went on the internet, and would that person be proud? That was what they were doing to protect their client. No. So not only protection, but great success for everyone involved in the industry. And part of that is you you are offering time-saving concepts here. Absolutely. It, you know, you, you set it up once and it's done. You don't, you know, don't waste your time. Do it once. Have it ready to go. Check through it. And there you go. Was, is there anything controversial in your book? I I can't think of anything directly offhand, to be honest. Um, I do, you know, there might be different areas um, where people, no, I I can't think of anything. (laughs) I guess you might touch some nerves of those who are, as you put it, a little, have become complacent and, you know, not even sloppy. Yeah, that that's true. Yeah, they might be a little bit angry with me at saying, hey, let's get it together and, and let's do it, and how easy it is. You know, they just sit down, write it, and off they go. 
Well, that's not the image we want to portray to everybody. We want to be proud of what we do. We want to, you know, we're a real estate family, you know, and yes, we're a competitive family, but we're still family. So we have to work together, and if we all do that, life will be easier. If you just sneak off and and uh, write something and throw it in front of the uh, seller and back and forth, and you're not proud of it, it's not right, and somebody gets hurt, that's wrong. That's just wrong. Stay out of real estate jail, your lifeline to real estate. We've been listening to author Barbara Bell Olson. Barbara, tell us, how do we get your book? Um, it is at iUniverse, and it's certainly in Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. And I hope people will also look at my website um, and see what else is available. It's www.barbarabellolson.com. And there's some information there on more on the book and, and that kind of thing. But the book's definitely out there in the public for sure. Thank you so much, Barbara, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. I appreciate it. Have a great day. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Megan's Cry, and the author, Gregory Pollock. And Gregory joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Greg. Hello. Pleased to be here. Great to have you with us. Let me read just some things you've written to kind of set the stage a little bit more about your book, Megan's Cry. As you say, it's a beautiful love story. Once Megan cries out to God, she begins a journey with a total stranger and a welcoming Heavenly Father. When she begins, so does God. She finds her mother was right. God really is trying to teach us something every day. And, of course, with simple faith, she steps into the life she was meant to live. So... Things can really be tough, but often there's things to learn, and God is—he's always there. Yeah, I, I think in sometimes God brings us into a place where we have nowhere else to turn to but Him, and it can actually be a good place because it can be a place where He begins to change our situation in our lives and our hearts. Um, and I think He does have a wonderful plan for people. You know, if we can believe. Right, and that often is... He, very, he really helps us 
while we're in the world, but he doesn't. God helps us while we're in the world, but he, he doesn't take us out of the world. So he helps us deal with our lives and see his plan. He has a plan, and sometimes, you know, um, bad things do happen to good people. Well, we have to keep an eternal perspective on things, and that often is very difficult, especially in this uh, realm of mortality. Uh, Greg, tell us a little bit about your background before we get into the details of your book, a little bit about you and why you decided to write this book. Well, I I was born and raised in Neely, Nebraska, uh, up in northeast Nebraska, and I attended the uh, University of Nebraska in Lincoln, um, to get a degree in civil engineering. I actually have worked for over 33 years for the Department of Transportation. Um, I had an illness uh, in 1992, um, and I was pretty well uh, uh, stricken. I I lost my my wife at, at that time, and it was pretty painful, and so I actually wrote sort of for therapy, and uh, and then later, when the the book changed as I became more Christian, I kind of incorporated the Lord or God into the writing, and it became Christian fiction. But one thing, when I got done with the book, and I look at the world as it is, and I see that today, like, well, in the communities I grew up in when I was growing up, I mean, people never gave concealed carry a thought. You know, they weren't thinking that. And so... You know, I was hoping, as I saw my book going back and the kind of, you know, family Megan had, the kind of upbringing in her family, um, and the kind of life that she moved into, that, you know, um, it would be good for people to hear that and to might revive, you know, some simpler times, you know. So that's part of what I saw later after it was done. So Megan Richardson, 38-year-old divorcee, she's got a 10-year-old son, and then her life really changes a great deal when she reads a letter from her departed mom. Yeah, I mean, her whole world's closing in around her, and she reads her mother's final letter to her over and over, and these words, the Lord will soon complete your family, really confuse her. Because she's wondering, like, how can my mother know something like that? And Megan had always known that her mother possessed a special kind of faith and some kind of spiritual gift, but there was no way that her mother, Claire, could see, you know, into the future. And so it was just beyond the realm of human human possibility. So she's just wondering how that could be. And then she, you know, she returns to her job in Madison, Wisconsin, as a nurse, and she's just disappointed, and she's hurt, and she's got all these questions. Why, God? You know, why my mother? And there's just no reply. You know, it's just a quiet stillness. And one Friday morning, she runs to her patient, Sarah. And Sarah's a six-year-old little cancer patient. And Sarah saves Megan from a panic attack. And when this happens, Megan sees this little girl as a thousand times bigger on the inside than she is on the outside. And it opens up this question again, you know, is God really at work in this little girl? So then she's still floundering, trying to work, all, you know, becoming depressed. 
she takes the advice of her best friend. She returns to the family farm. And that's where she starts asking, what if I don't get better? What will happen to me then? And then, um, sitting alone in her room, she spirals into this deep depression, and she cries out to God, and God is there for her. He's always been there for her. And then over the next six days, you know, the, the Lord changes her situation and her life, and she finds this life and this man that she was meant to live with live her life with so it all kind of happens right after she cries out to god and it's this time that she spends with this darren weston that her father when her when her mother had gotten ill had hired this darren weston to help operate the dairy so he'd have more time to be with claire and he's there as hired help but this girl again she has this 10 year old son and uh, Darren's taking the boy fishing and stuff, so all of a sudden, you know, they begin to, you know, touch each other. I mean, or Megan comes to where she begins to know this Darren, and they begin to talk and do things together over that six-day period. So your book is unlike a lot of romance novels because it, dresses, it addresses some very critical spiritual questions. Well, I think, um, you know, when people date, um, a lot of times they, they might, you know, a Christian Christians ask, is this the right person for me, God? You know, I mean, am I dealing with, am I dating the right person here? And I think that um, Megan's Cry, as a r- romance novel, you know, deals with adding God to the story that a lot of times, you know, um, more secular romance novels would never, never do. That's true. Now, we all know there are times when we face real adversity, sometimes more than we think we can handle, and of course, that brings uncertainty and fear and doubt, and your book is really trying to help us understand, you know, when we get to that point where we start asking these questions, uh, especially questioning God, uh, you know, almost is like he's betrayed us, and we start wondering, is he really there? Uh, does he really have a plan for my life? Your story just kind of opens up the real truth behind it all. Yeah, I mean, if you look at how many people today are stressed and even maybe depressed over maybe financial certain uncertainties or their family's uh, futures and problems, and you, I think there are readers out there who can relate to what Megan experiences in this book. Um, and their problems, you know, I think, in, in, I've had a little bit in my life, when the problems just seem too big and too hard and too painful for me to solve. And Megan's cry, you know, it comes to the reader, you know, where they are, you know, and it encourages them to come to Christ and kind of let Christ take away their fears and, and bring them some joy, you know. And, and the, you know, Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven, you know, and the kingdom of heaven was inside of us. And I think if we, you know, can let Jesus in, that kingdom can, can bring us peace and joy. And the real key issue, if we only believe. That's a big thing in my book. I, I tried to fold that a little bit or make it larger and, and emphasize um, 
that I wanted the readers to know how that they that there was this plan for them if they could only believe to step out in faith and try to believe and cast their burden on on Jesus that is critical that is critical to find peace why was why was writing chapter 16 when Megan cries out to God. Why was that so challenging for you? Yeah, the middle of the book is when uh, Megan cries out to God and asks, you know, I need help, Lord. You know, I just, I can't do this on my own. And I had kind of done that on my own um, years ago, 20 years ago. And maybe I didn't remember it. But, you know, the thing about that was bringing God into her life, and God doesn't just jump out and go, hey, I'm I'm God, and I want to have a talk with you. So God doesn't speak to us audibly. And to bring about this change where she sees God's on her side, God's with her, God's going to change her, and not have God talking to her, like, you can't write that. You have to... You write it, but it's, it becomes harder to write. I think for me it became more difficult to write because it was so subtle. that, And in the end, I mean, she, all, she picks this idea up. If I can only, if I can only, if I can only believe, then I'm going to, you know, be better, get better. And you do that without having God come down and tell you I'm right here. She just, you know, all of a sudden, you know, has this experience. And then she believes that God's right there. So it's a little harder. It's a little different. You can't. It's not like just two people having a dialogue. <laughs> Dialogues out there. And often, but I, I think I think it was uh, it worked out. Okay. I think it worked out well, and um, I think it's very believable. And often, God places people in our lives that at first we may not see how they might help us. But in this case, Sarah, the little one, the six-year-old, she becomes the nurse, and the nurse becomes the patient. Yeah, and the little girl, you know, is sort of symbolic of childlike faith. You know, if you, you, you're a father, you've got kids, and they come up to you wide-eyed, and they just speak what's on their mind. And children are, you know, so pure and, and so open and I think God is just filling them up every day. He just fills them up. And so that childlike faith was in Sarah. That's what I think of it. You know, I think there was, I think there was that she sort of did things with Megan that Megan thought was, you know, almost extraordinary or, or almost miraculous, miraculous. But really it was just her wide open love, you know, and, and her, her open heart that a lot of, you know, us adults, I mean, adults like us, we kind of shut that up. And that little girl, you know, little little girls and little guys, they can, little children, they, they just open up and they just do that naturally. Well, we all have probably, especially those of us who are a little older, remember a time when families and neighbors were really close and your hope is that Megan's cry might revive the love people shared in those simpler times my parents when I grew up 
had so many friends, and they hosted card clubs, and the people in the community really cared about one another, and they would laugh. And, you know, I have seen things uh, since I've written Megan's Cry, and I think I want to mention it, since I've written it, I've become a little more sensitized to, you know, the violence in the world, and it saddens me, and I, 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 I really would like to think that I might have done something with this book that gives people something clean and pure and fresh and, and brings them to a better place, you know, with Christ, that they can take away the violence. You know, one thing, when I titled this book, Megan's Cry, um, that word cry, actually, what happened, John the Baptist came out of the, the desert, and he was crying out to the people for them to repent, and he was telling them that the kingdom of God was near. And he asked them, you know, to forgive one another, and he asked them to do violence to no one. And I I guess I later on, after I, you know, named it Megan's Cry, I think of that quite often now, that just like John crying out to the people saying, you know, God is going to come, God is coming, and just be good to your neighbor. You know, don't do harm to your neighbor. So, um, yeah, that's, it's, it, it may seem a little odd to you, but um, that's a big, big thing of, of the title. That's what it reminds me of. We've been listening to Gregory Pollock. He's the author of his book, Megan's Cry. Gregory, tell us how we get your book. Well, the book's available on Amazon.com and Barnes & Noble, uh, iUniverse. Um, anyway, I um, hope, I mean, I'll keep talking to people, and hopefully uh, if I can get people to you know, get on Facebook. I have a Facebook page. Uh, for Gregory Pollock that they can get on, they can make comments or you know, and you know just let other people know that they they enjoyed the book if they did if they did buy it and they did like the book. So that would help greatly to um, to you know get the book you know a little bit better known. Greg, thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Oh well, hey, thanks for having me very much, and have a good have a good day, and I hope all the listeners will. Well, you know, give some thought to look in the book over. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back. 
to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. An interesting book, biographical tale, titled, While Being a Parent. You need advice on what to do as a parent. Need to know that God is there all the time. If you need to know that, you need to read this book. And our author is Eddie Marie Durham. Thank you, ma'am, for joining me today. Thank you. Tell me the background story. Why did you feel it was necessary to tell your story, tell the story of your family, and, and try to inspire others? Many of the complications that, were, that I had while being a parent and some of the things that I had done I thought would help someone else, especially those things that I learned as a teacher when I was teaching children of other parents and how the effect of parenting had on what the children would do as they grew up or as in the classroom. That's and what got me. Is this the first book you've written, or have you written others? I've written one, uh, one before. This one is called Mama Babe and Me, and it's uh, more like a life history of my, my life history and my, my mother's. And it also gives the background of both of us, our, as much of the family, the heritage that we could think of. Grandparents. You currently live in. Grandparents. Yeah, you currently live in the Texas area in South Texas. Have you lived yes. there long? I've lived here in Port Arthur for more than 50 years. And as a teacher, tell me the first experience you remember as a parent that you decided to include in this book. As a teacher, uh, one of the things that I learned that is that you have to show a child that you love them and that they need discipline. One of those kind of things. And, and, and I don't mean the kind of punishment. There's a difference in discipline and punishment. Keeping children on the right path and doing the right thing is what we would call discipline, letting them know where they go. But uh, punishment is a no, whole nother ball game, and uh, I saw that so much in my teaching experience. The front of your book has three handsome-looking gentlemen on there. Who are those individuals? And uh, describe those gentlemen for my listeners. <laughs> the first one on the book on your left side in the light gray uh, suit is the middle son. His name is Kenneth Wayne, and he's the one that is uh, a businessman. The one in the middle is Bobby Jr., Bobby Durham Jr., and he's a policeman. And the one on the right side in the gray is the oldest son, and he is a, what a, his mom calls a handyman because he does okay. He used to own his ta- own taxi business until a few things happened in where he was living in Houston, and he decided to do something else. Eddie, in reflecting on the contents of your book and the stories you've told, what do you think is going to be most interesting to our listeners and to the readers? I have no idea what would do that. Uh, the, the challenging time for me is while I was, uh, after the one, my middle son was graduated and in college, I went to uh, uh, an affair, and I'm allergic to cigarette smoke, and my voice changed from native Texan language to sometimes people ask me if I'm from the Caribbean or, or some other part of the world. 
and I have no idea how it happened. But and the things that my youngest son, the fun that my youngest son had with my voice changing. So it it did change, and that was the effect of uh, being involved in an environmental situation. Yes, I'm allergic to smoke, and I got what you would call laryngitis. And when it when the I was able to talk again without it hurting, I had the accent from someplace else. You do have a little bit of a Caribbean sort of twang to your voice. Where were you born? And share with the listeners a little of your childhood remembrances. In central Texas, probably about uh, 100 miles from Dallas. That's my native home. And I remember going when I was doing... The, uh, having the problems. My doctor here sent me to Houston to the diagnostic center, and I saw so many doctors, and that's also in the book, uh, who would come in and he would just say, ask uh, where you think she's from, after she would, he would ask me to talk to them. And they all were fascinated by what I sounded like, even though... Uh, I was a native Texan. They didn't really believe me for a while. Well, it's a fascinating fascinating sound that you have uh, created. It's distinctive, and, and uh, of course, you're a charming lady anyway. But That's what nice. was it like to try to raise three boys? It was fun. Uh, I always, they were, they, were, they were rambunctious at times, but most of the time it was fun because I enjoyed, I, from the time I could remember, I enjoyed having thought that I would enjoy having children. I would. I thought at first I was going to have more than that, but I didn't have uh, but those, the boys, and that was fun as it was. It, there were times when I would was uh, in the air about what I should do or how I should uh, react to some of the situations that they were involved in, but it was still an exciting journey. <laughs> you have uh, several chapters, and one that I think is distinctive and uh, certainly one I can relate to, Mama Paved the Way. What is that about? That's about the kind of upbringing that I had with my mother and the kind of uh, loving care. That's where I learned what I did know about what to do about children and how to take care of them was from my mother because she was that kind. She had gone through so many terrible experiences in her life, but and the fact that we were uh, a very poor family, and but I didn't really realize how poor I was until I left home because we were so happy where we were. We just knew we didn't have many of the material things that everyone else had, but... We were happy with it, and I think the only reason we were is because of my mother's loving kindness, because my daddy died when I was about 10 years old. One of the chapters that deals with an incident that happened to Kenneth. Share with my listeners the story of Kenneth and how he fell into a coma. Kenneth had been, he is a, had been a manager for several companies like uh, the Sharper Image and Montgomery Wards and uh, 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 automobile fact, uh, uh, I think Nissan, one of those automobile companies. 
he's been a manager and a business manager for years, but he always sang in the choir, and he had been singing all over Orlando because of that was his home. He had been singing, and he came home and went to bed, and when he woke up that it was on a Sunday morning, he had been singing that weekend, a Saturday night, and he woke up, uh, and he told his wife that he didn't feel well. And uh, she came in, and by the time she got there, he was almost out. And so she got him to the hospital, and by then he was, he was in a coma. And he stayed in a coma from that day until about Wednesday of the week uh, that I went out there to see him. And the doctors didn't have, didn't have anything that they knew about that caused him to be in the coma except that the fact that he might have had a stroke and because he had had some many strokes before that he didn't realize he had. He also had medication that he was supposed to take, and he had decided it wasn't doing. He felt all right, and he didn't, he didn't take his medicine. So he was in a coma, and we were there with him in the hospital for, from Sunday until about Wednesday is when he started coming out of it. And about Thursday is when he finally kind of was out a little on that Wednesday, but it was Thursday morning before he kind of realized even where he was. That was a traumatic experience. Very traumatic. And what is his current situation? Oh, he's he's as handsome as he was on that picture, and he's uh, managing the kangaroo. You know, it's uh, a set of stores similar to 7-Eleven here in Texas, and he's a district manager for those stores in Orlando. Well, that's incredible. You do sound a little prejudicial towards your kids, though. I mean, I might say that. <laughs> I am. <laughs> Maybe it's not because they look and like... I, you know, it, it, this, it, and, and that kind of prejudice, I don't mind saying, letting <laughs> anybody know. Yes, I do. <laughs> now, is it because you think they look a lot like you, or is it just because they're just good-looking guys? Uh, they, it's just because they're a good-looking guy. <laughs> <laughs> they do so much for their mother. I've seen your picture on the back, and I, I will say that you're a striking lady as well. So they come from good heritage. Uh, you, mentioned Jennifer, you. you mentioned Jennifer. Who is Jennifer in your story? Jennifer is Kenneth's wife, the uh, middle son. That's his wife. And she uh, had some traumatic surgeries because she had two within a year's time. And uh, uh, she had to go through uh, some... I, from 1 o'clock till about 9 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, 9.30, in, uh, in surgery. And it was such a traumatic experience. But she is coming along nicely. Beautiful. You've shared your story, your, your family history, your family story. Who do you think is going to enjoy reading about you and your boys? I think people, the most of the ones they would enjoy reading it is uh, ones who would, what do you do in this situation and and that kind of thing, those people who are parents themselves, and then those who are uh, working with programs in the church because the book contains poems, programs, and uh, writings from the Bible as well as the things that, because I did those things while I was being a parent. You also have included some fun reflections as well. Yes. The, In, uh, what's fun the, what's, kind of things. What is the fun? What is the funnest 
if I may use that phrase, uh, activity or, or incident that happened in your family? Well, the uh, time that I went to the wedding of uh, the, the young, the middle son in Orlando, and I, my, the oldest boy went with us, and he had to be daddy for all three, his, his two daughters and me, too. <laughs> when we went, we went to New Orleans. <laughs> oh, boy. And he would tell us things not to look at, and those would be the things we would look at. But I was just as bad as the other girls. You know? S- sounds like a parent issue to me. I don't know. I, I think you tell a kid or a child or someone, don't do that, and they automatically just uh, gravitate to whatever they're not supposed to do. And, 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 and with the things that were going on in New Orleans, it was, for us, it was something else, and we, we had fun looking at it. Because some of the things they were selling, somehow people were reacting on the the streets of Bourbon Street, and it was a real, real experience. Well, yeah, and you shared that in your book. What, what was the challenge? What challenging part was there in getting this to print? Was there anything in reflection that you wondered whether you should should maybe comment on, or was it all easy to get this done? Most of it was. It just came from what happened. Uh, and what what the experiences I had and the feelings that I had at that time, because I had been doing it, I, I also write poetry on a normal basis because I have oh about fourteen little chapbooks that I because I wrote for a company that published poetry, and so this just came as along with it. And how long did it take to complete? About two years. Thank you so much for sharing your story and the story of the book that you have published titled While Being a Parent. You need advice on what to do as a parent. If you need to know that God is there all the time, then you need to read this book. That sounds like a mama's uh, advice. Thank you. Thank you, Eddie Marie Durham, for joining me today. Where do we get copies of your book? We can get copies um, uh, from uh, Amazon.com, iUniverse, and uh, a million, and I think Barnes & Noble may have them. If they don't have them, they can order them. You can also go to a website with my name and the name of the book and also find out where you can order them from on, on the computer. Wonderful. And the correct spelling of your name is E-D-D-I-E, middle name Marie, yes. M-A-R-I-E, last name Durham, D-U-R-H-A-M. Thank you, Eddie, yes, for joining me today. Correct. Thank you. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.